I'm Teresa Wiesar, your host of One in 10. In today's episode, Trauma and Resiliency in Military Families, I speak with Dr. Stephen Kotza, a researcher and a professor at the Uniformed Services University about the unique strengths and challenges of military families. Now, when we think of military families, we rightly think of sacrifice and duty. But do we also think about resiliency, perseverance, and a sense of community? The unique sense of identity that comes with military service comes with a complex set of supports and struggles for service member families. What are the risk and protective factors that we should be aware of in working with military families? How do the phases of deployment and re-entry create some points of unique vulnerabilities that we need to attend to? And at a time when many soldiers are returning home, how can we support families during this time? I know that you'll find this conversation with Dr. Kotza as interesting as I did. Take a listen. Dr. Kotza, welcome to One in 10. It's so great to have you here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. How did you come to this work really examining trauma and military families? First of all, I'm a retired Army psychiatrist, both adult and child and adolescent psychiatrist. I spent 25 years in the military, and I largely worked as a clinician for that time, uh, working with military families, working a lot with military children. I ended my time on active duty as the chief of the Department of Psychiatry at Walter Reed, and and during my um, tenure in that position, the attack on the Pentagon occurred in the start of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. So although I'd always had to some degree some interest in trauma, it was really that initiation in understanding the profound impact that trauma can have on uh, children and uh, on adults and on families. And, And while I was at Walter Reed, we had many, many combat injured families come to Walter Reed and so began uh, becoming very interested in the experiences of those families. I shifted over to the Uniformed Services University, the Center for the Study of Traumatic Stress in 2006. And since that time, I've been doing quite a bit of research around military families related to trauma, also related to child maltreatment, looking at both the experience of maltreatment in military families, as well as the risk factors and protective factors that impact military families. We're going to talk a little bit about both the risk and protective factors for a moment. And one of the things that I was both pleased to see and interested in hearing more about is what's unique either to military culture or to the supports that are available to families that really does serve as protective factors and factors of resiliency, essentially, for military families? Sure. Great questions. Teresa, one thing I I would like to say before we get started is I'm happy to share my views, but I want to make sure everyone is aware the comments I make shouldn't be construed as official positions or policies of the DOD or the Uniformed Services University. And if I mention any non-federal resources, that doesn't necessarily signify an endorsement of those programs. Uh, But happy to have a conversation about all of this. And I love the idea of starting out with military family strengths, because I think there are so many strengths related to uh, being in the military and strengths related to being children and families in the military. Um, One of the things that often gets overlooked is really the sense of identity of military families and military communities. So I think that there's a, a recognition of the purpose, mission, and service of those families that 
creates a unifying sense of meaning and purpose. And because of that, I, I do think that uh, there's a strength in that. There's both a, a strength for individuals, strength for families and parents, as well as communities. But there are many protective factors associated with military family life. So one thing uh, that military families have that's not the case for all families in the United States is that at least one of the parents is employed. Um, so every parent in the military has a service-related job. And as part of the benefits that go along with that, they also have health care available, uh, universal health care available to both themselves as well as their family members, which creates great strength. And we know it's certainly protective in terms of child maltreatment more broadly um, when we look at the entire population. Families also have uh, support for housing. And they have access to some of the, the best child care uh, services in the country. Uh, the, the child development centers in the military are um, uh, uniformly identified as models of high quality child care throughout the United States. And in fact, have been identified by the current administration as potentially great models for national plans for, for child care. There are a few other important uh, protective factors that are significant. One of them has to do with entry standards into the military. So there are certain requirements that military service members have to have uh, that include both physical health, mental health, um, as well as no history of criminal or problematic behavior. And in fact, uh, only about 30% of youth now meet uh, the criteria for entry into the military. So given that, we're fortunate that the military community includes and engages a group of citizens that are actually protected in many ways because of that prior history. However, they also have unique, like uh, all uh, U.S. citizens, there are unique risk factors um, associated with military life as well as the strengths. Well, I want to turn to that in just a moment, but you know, it occurs to me that our listeners may not know much about military families in general, you know, things like basic demographic information. I mean, you made an interesting comment in regard to only 30% of youth currently would really even qualify meeting the entry requirements to be in the military. So you, you do have a somewhat specialized group. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the demographics of military families? Sure. Um, well, about half military service members are married, and it's roughly 40% of military service members have children. Uh, there's an average about two children in the family. Military families are generally young, and uh, there are many infants and toddlers in the military as well. So it's uh, these are young families. We, we do have a broad range of ranks in the military, ranging from junior enlisted ranks, E1s to E3s. Uh, E4 to E6s, and then senior enlisted E7s and above, as well as officer ranks. So an individual may uh, be uh, in their early 20s in the military, but we also have family members that are, you know, parents that are in their 40s and in their 50s as well. But we tend to be a younger population with younger children. It's interesting because I'm sure while that could pose its own potential risk factor, the youth of parents in and of themselves, on the other hand, it's a wonderful opportunity, I think, to influence good parenting right from the start in a lot of ways for these families, too. That's right. I mean, I think that there are both opportunities for military families in terms of, po of developing positive parenting strategies through 
a combination of programs that are available as well as through the healthcare system in the military. But what we do know is that younger families tend to be at greater risk for child maltreatment. And in fact, for those children in the military who um, have been victims of child abuse, a large percentage of them are younger. Um, mm. and, um, and a large percentage of our service member families where a child is victimized, they tend to also be younger. So let's turn our attention a little bit to some of the risk factors that you were alluding to a few moments ago. I think one of the things we think about is family separation through deployment, that that in and of itself is a family stressor. You know, what else really rises as a potential risk factor for military families? First of all, military families, unlike civilian families, many civilian families move away from their extended family, but because of assignments with deployments aside, they're very often located in places in the country that are removed from extended families. So the reliance that we might have on um, grand parents or or aunts and uncles to assist, say, with some respite services uh, Mm. aren't necessarily always available to military families. In addition, in certain locations, the challenges might be greater because of cultural or demographic differences for specific families in terms of the ways that they manage with life or their access to resources. So, for example, families that are located in overseas assignments or uh, outside the continental United States, OCONUS assignments, we call them, oftentimes are faced with greater challenges because there are, first of all, questions about the schooling of children in terms of where they're going to go to school. And uh, DOD has overseas schools, but also in terms of activities for children, activities for family, connection with neighbors, there could be language differences, and there could be uh, challenges related to access to resources that may be much more easily accessed by individuals in the United States who are more comfortable in that environment. Those, I think, are important. And then there are deployments, of course. Actually, even before we go to deployments, thinking about relocation. So military families, unlike many civilian counterparts, uh, typically are relocating to military installations around the country every two to three years. So for many families, that's an exciting opportunity and an adventure to try new things. But with certain families, especially those with medical conditions, developmental disorders in children, where a range of resources is required to provide the care and the the, um, services uh, in order to address those conditions, there can be discontinuities in the availability of that as they move from place to place. So in addition, for children and families, it's a matter of, again, regrounding yourself, getting oriented in a new command, a new job, a new community, new friends. So Uh, So those are stressors for families. And many military families enjoy the opportunity to be reassigned and relocate. They get a chance to see many parts of the country that many of us don't, uh, many parts of the world, in fact. Uh, But for some families, that can be a bit challenging and it can also be stressful. And and if you've done it two, three, five, six times, I mean, some families do, you know, 10 or more moves along with multiple transitions and school placement, all of that can be a challenge in terms of how we manage with it, how we uh, negotiate the continuity of educational programs for our kids, for the healthcare needs, and, and just kind of a basic sense of connection to the community that shifts every few years. You know, I was the director of a center in Colorado Springs, which has a large military presence, and both in terms of our clients and on my own staff. And 
one of the things that I was really struck by is, well, it is true that, you know, some families may struggle more with relocations than others. It's also true that kids within a family react very differently as well. You know, you can have some kids who seem to readily make new friends and uh, get, you know, really hone those social skills. And then other kiddos who really struggle with that loss of a sense of place, I think. Teresa, that's absolutely true. I, I can tell you from a clinical perspective that um, I've worked with families where the parents and two out of the three children have just been gung-ho about moving. And then there's a third child who is a little slower to warm up. Maybe it takes them a, a bit longer to develop connections, whereas their brother or sister is able to get out and make friends very easily. And so to think about, okay, it took me two years to develop these friendships and now I have to move again. I think that's absolutely true that, um, that it's not just about one individual in the family um, uh, or it's not just about the family, it's about every individual in the family in terms of how they manage, and, and um, depending upon the circumstances and the developmental stage of a child, that can be super challenging. So the military has worked hard, for example, over the past several decades now to, to maintain locations of families, say, with uh, older children who are seniors in high school, like mm -hmm. moving from junior to senior year, just because they recognize the relocations are really challenging for kids when they're making those transitions um, at older ages, preparing for college and about to leave the family, uh, potentially either for an employment opportunity or for undergraduate education. You know, a significant part of your career has been spent, as you were noting in the intro, in this period of time in which it was post 9-11 and really we were in an extended war that really went on for 20 years. And so in thinking about um, not only kids who, and families who've experienced parent deploying once, but in many cases, if they're a career military family, maybe many times over that period of time, you know, what does the military do? I know there, there are lots of programs and access to services to help support families when they're experiencing those types of separations, which are stressful on many levels. Well, first, I would say that you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that this has been an unprecedented period of time for military families. I mean, we have to remember, I'll just just mention, because I think it's sure. important, you know, back in the Vietnam War, which was probably one of the last times that we had a major deployment here, you know, we didn't have the same uh, proportion of military families, that it really wasn't until the volunteer service started, where service members were married and their children were part of the family. And, and so we, we saw significant growth in um, historically in the presence of families after the all-volunteer force started. Um, so this whole experience uh, since 2001 has been the first time that families have been so profoundly affected. That's not to limit the importance of recognizing there were families it's, smaller numbers of them of families that were profoundly affected in, in wars like Vietnam. But really, this was, as a community, the, the largest impact that we've ever had on military families. And uh, there's been great concern. And so there have been a number of programs that have been put out by the DOD, uh, recognizing um, the importance of military families creating 
services available through each of the service branches through military community and family policy office at DOD for the purposes of uh, supporting family members through deployment and through the other challenges that they're facing. The uh, Military Family Life Consultant Program is another really important program that um, was created as a non-medical counseling program that was available for military family members to ensure their comfort in seeking out support and assistance if they were having some difficulties without it necessarily being documented in a medical record that was making some service members and family members uncomfortable with, um, and a way to ease engagement for military families and allow them to get connected to more services. Another huge development over the past 20 years was um, Military One Source, which is a, um, an important umbrella program that identifies and directs uh, family members to all kinds of services within the military more broadly or more community-based services. And every community has uh, community service programs that provide support. Uh, there are also uh, child and teen support services uh, within communities that provide activities for kids. And all of that has been set up in an effort to both assist families and then provide access to special programming if, in fact, they're running into trouble as it relates to deployment. There's been a lot of internal, you know, internal unit support, both in the chain of command, as well as what we refer to as the chain of concern, so the spouses, um, you know, of military service members who take on informal but profoundly important roles in supporting each other and supporting families uh, across the units, whether they are higher ranking families or lower ranking families. So I know that during this period, there's also been a lot of interest and in research about military families in response to deployment, also as it relates to child maltreatment. Is there anything that we've really learned in this period about whether or not sort of these repeated deployments have any impact on child maltreatment numbers in the military? Yeah, so really important question. Uh, so what we did learn back in the time period from 2001 to 2004, that we actually saw uh, a general increase in maltreatment rates in military families, that there was a 40% increase in child neglect prevalence in the military during that time. Actually, the other events, uh, uh, maltreatment events like physical abuse and emotional abuse and sexual abuse did not increase uh, in prevalence or frequency during that time, but child neglect did. So there were quite a few concerns about um, what the issue there was and what was contributing to it and how best to address it. Um, we've also looked at, and there have been, you know, there, and there's much more work that needs to be done in these areas, but uh, there's been some publication of work uh, looking at the risk of child maltreatment at different parts of the deployment cycle. So it's important for, um, for listeners to remember that deployment, we think we use that term very broadly, but there are different stressors that develop at different parts of the deployment cycle. So pre-deployment, meaning preparing for a deployment, is when there's a lot of intense activity that might include, you know, I'm just coming into a new unit, they're getting ready to deploy, I'm getting my family settled, 
the kids are starting in school and lots and lots of stress associated with the preparation as well as separations from family for training purposes. So there's a lot of train up pre-deployment that adds risk. And what we found is that there are certain groups, uh, for example, uh, families of um, female service members have been shown to have higher risk of maltreatment during that period, as well as those with pre-existing mental health conditions. Then we also uh, have recognized that during the deployed period, so this is when the service member is um, is gone for any one of uh, any any um, stretch of time, and that's varied across the services in terms of whether those have been three month deployments, six month deployments, one year deployments, or greater that uh, there are a couple of challenges there. First of all, we, in essence, are creating single parent families by doing that. So um, we know in the general literature associated with child maltreatment that single parent families are at greater risk for child maltreatment. And certainly it might relate to the idea of why we were seeing increased rates of child neglect during that time. But there are also many other stressors uh, for children that may contribute to maltreatment, but maybe not, just stress within the family related to worries about the health and well-being of service members when they're deployed. And there have been a number of uh, studies that have shown uh, greater emotional and behavioral challenges for kids and increased depressive and anxiety symptoms in spouses during periods of deployment. So we know this is really stressful. Some of the longitudinal examination of this in kids has not shown um, long-term negative effects of deployment on children's outcomes, but during that period, it can be quite challenging. And then we have the the post-deployment period, or what we refer to as the reunification time, which most people would think about a, as a honeymoon and you know the service member comes back home and everything's great again. But really, that's a period in t- of time in which um, the family is really readjusting. So, uh, so if a service member was away for a year, uh, that family has essentially grown in that service member's absence and moved forward and developed in different ways. And so there's some catching up to do. And uh, we know uh, that there can be conflict in families during the reunification period that uh, the six months post reunification has been identified as a risk period for maltreatment. Um, although some of the data there are a bit variable, but um, it, it, it would be understandable given some of the, the challenges. The, the other thing that's really important to remember about the reunification period is that not only is the service member returning, but if in fact they were affected in ways uh, in combat, uh, whether it had to do with traumatic brain injury, whether it had to do with post-traumatic stress disorder, we know that families who um, are managing with the presence of those conditions in their home really are under a greater amount of stress. There is higher levels of conflicts across families, not all families, but across families comparing those where the service member has PTSD or TBI to those where they don't, we see higher levels of conflict. And we also um, uh, see uh, uh, associations between PTSD and traumatic brain injury and higher risk for child maltreatment. And that's true not only in military families, that's true in civilian families as well. So so when we think about deployment, we want to kind of break it up into understanding what that experience is. There's some evidence that would suggest that 
families that manage um, more than one deployment that there is a there there is a learning curve that comes with that where uh, families develop greater capacity to manage uh, with deployment, but that really varies from family to family. And just like we were talking about individuals and families before, there are some deployments where families do fine. And then there, there may be another deployment later where, although they had done well, they're met with a whole different set of stressors, whether it's related to the deployment and exposure of the service member, or whether it's related to um, new developments in the family or developmental challenges for particular children, it can really color the, uh, you know, each deployment has its own flavor, its own level of um, challenge. And a family that did well with one doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to not struggle with another deployment mm. on the timing. One of the things that I'm also wondering about, you know, you were talking about neglect and I saw from your CV that you have a long history of researching neglect and it's a particular area of interest and it's a particular area of interest of mine. And, you know, in the civilian world, when we look at neglect, we're looking at factors often that relate to poverty and mental illness and lack of access to substance abuse treatment for parents and, you know, rates of domestic violence, a whole constellation of things, not just one thing, but often that range. Now, interestingly enough, some of the factors, of course, not all of them, but some of them aren't exactly the same necessarily with military families because you may not have the same rates of unemployment or other kinds of things. I'm just wondering, you know, as you've been researching neglect within military families, fundamentally, what do you believe is not that I'm looking for one, but what do you think are the causes of that? And how does that differ from what we might see in civilian cases? Right. No, I think that's an excellent question. Uh, the first thing I'm going to say, because this is something that we found in the work we've done, is that we tend to use that term neglect as a large umbrella term for a variety of different phenomena that fall under neglect. So we were really interested in this. This was partly because the, the rates of child neglect in military families had increased uh, early on from like 2001 to 2004, as I mentioned. So shortly after that, we, we went to four large army installations and we randomly selected um, substantiated case files of neglect in those communities by year. Uh, so we had a stratified random sample to sort of look at, okay, what is the actual phenomenology? What's happening here? And we used what's called the Modified Maltreatment Classification System. And we actually recoded all of those cases to identify what was really the description. And I think this is true in the civilian world as well as the DOD, but we really, when we, uh, when we classify neglect, we classify it as neglect. We don't go into greater detail about what that is. Right. And people have really different opinions about what neglect is. What we found was that in the 400 cases we looked for, there was a variety. And so there were different types of neglect and the types of neglect included, understandably, supervisory neglect was 
high on the list in terms of uh, about a third of the cases were supervisory neglect, but another third of the cases were uh, what were we reclassified as emotional neglect. And almost all of those were uh, children exposed to intimate partner violence in the family. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then there was failure to provide. And these were uh, cases where, you know, there was a severe lack of availability of whether it was food or hygiene or housing or clothing or medical care uh, that contributed to neglectful circumstances in children. Um, We also found a smaller percentage of what were referred to as moral legal neglect. These were often circumstances in which kids were exposed to um, illegal behavior or substance use, um, uh, and then educational neglect, where kids were essentially pulled from school or they, they didn't get their educational needs met. So we became really interested in this because we found that there were different risk factors associated with these different types. And if different risk factors are associated with different types, then that would tell us that really prevention strategies need to be thinking a little bit more in a more nuanced way about how to approach them. So in cases, when we looked at the impact of deployment, for example, uh, we, we looked at three groups. One was, was the service member currently deployed at the time of the incident? Had they been previously deployed or had they never been deployed? And what we found was those where a deployment was actually occurring at the time uh, were involved in these incidents of supervisory neglect and educational neglect and failure to provide. So what we found was, and we looked at risk factors related to um, other family risk factors, that the presence of mental health providers also resulted in failure to provide. So many of these circumstances were situations where at home, single military spouses were just falling apart uh, during Mm -hmm. deployments. Uh, They were likely depressed or had their own mental health problems, and then they weren't in a situation to be able to manage it. In other situations, it clearly wasn't during uh, periods of deployment. It actually could happen either for families who had never had a deployment or they had a prior deployment was uh, emotional Uh, neglect, where there was domestic violence. And of course, these were families that were endorsing high levels of pre-existing family conflict. Um, And then we found uh, substance abuse highly associated with moral legal neglect. So as we look at neglect, again, my, my main interest in thinking about this is thinking that I'm wondering if we need to do a little bit of deeper dive into these experiences so that we can more clearly drive the programming. So uh, families that are struggling with um, uh, intimate partner violence clearly need a different approach than families that are struggling with failure to provide physical needs. We also found significant differences in severity across those groups. So, you know, supervisory neglect, um, although it was the most prevalent, was actually the least severe. These were circumstances where children might have, you know, gotten out of the uh, supervisory care of their parents. There were some individual more serious cases where, uh, again, a child was was put into the care of somebody who was not capable of taking care of them. But for the most part, uh, these were circumstances that were not as severe, say, as uh, as uh, exposure to intimate partner violence mm. or exposure uh, or, or failure to provide. So understanding the complexity of that um, is an important way of thinking about then how do we best program for that? Oh, this is music to my ears. <laughs> and I say that because one of my frustrations with 
neglect generally is just that, you know, I just feel like, and I'm talking not about necessarily in the military, but just general child welfare services neglect, you know, it makes up the majority of cases. We just have not budged those numbers in 40 years. I mean, there's been a slight downtick over that period of time, uh, but very little, particularly in comparison to physical abuse or sexual abuse, where we've made good strides as a country in reducing those things. And so I'm just wondering, as I'm listening to you talk, whether one reason that we may not have budged those numbers at all is because we're really treating it all the same. You know, we're taking we're a neglect case comes in and we're like, well, gee, we have this set constellation of services that we're going to apply and it may or may not be effective. And I'm wondering, you know, in the military, you were talking about from 2001 to 2004 that that spiked, right? Neglect spiked. But then it sounds like after that, it dropped. It did. Yeah. Okay. So what drove that drop? Because I'm just so curious about those numbers coming down since in the civilian world, we don't seem to be able to get them down. Right. Well, um, I don't know that I've got a good answer for that. Uh, <laughs> I wish oh, I Oh, darn, I was so excited. I was waiting to hear this. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I think um, if I were to associate, I, I would think of it, you know, when we say the numbers dropped, I think that what I might say is they returned more to their baseline. And so we had seen heightened levels of neglect during that period uh, because of, I think, the initial um, intense activation of deployments of, I mean, the the operational tempo during those years mm. was incredibly high. And I think yes. that we, we um, saw the result that this was one of the results that we saw in those families. Um, I think over time, Certainly now the operational tempo is not what it was back, you know, in the early to mid part of the wars. And so we're seeing kind of a a return to what had been more of a traditional level of uh, neglect cases in the military. So in looking across your research around neglect, aside from, you know, sort of needing to apply differing solutions to differing types of neglect, were there any other findings that were aha moments for you or surprising or things that sort of lead you to think that there's follow-up research that needs to be done? Well, I think there certainly needs to be follow-up research even more broadly in maltreatment in the military. I mean, if you know, it's really interesting in many ways, I think military, the work that's been done in military maltreatment um, parallels much of what was done in the civilian world. But much of the programming started about four decades ago, and we've really been working like since the 1970s when laws were put into place in terms of developing family advocacy programs. And, and I think there's been so much progress in so many ways, both in terms of identifying the challenges associated with military families, recognizing and identifying um, the incidents. So there's been increasing, uh, some of your listeners may not be aware, but you know, there's been an incredible effort to standardize the way um, um, child maltreatment is categorized and identified in the military. So prior to, you know, the mid 2000s, most communities were uh, acting independently in identifying and uh, substantiating cases of child maltreatment. And there were uh, large differences. And now uh, there are standardized ways in which child maltreatment is identified and substantiated across all the services. That's really been incredibly helpful in our understanding of the phenomenology of child maltreatment in the military. 
In addition, I think that there's also been great lengths uh, to put together new prevention programming. So, um, so the Family Advocacy Program has been working hard for a long period of time to both identify and to create programming, one of them being the New Parent Support Program that's been in place for a while. Um, and I, I know that that's a program that continues to develop and grow based upon um, information that's received in the most recent report of the DOD FAP, the 2020 report, they had reported that 99% of cases that were enrolled in the new parent support program where there had been an event of child maltreatment, there was no recidivism after a year. So that's a that really, that's great. really important because yes. um, as you probably know, Teresa, I mean, families that have had an event, whether it is a domestic abuse event or, you know, intimate partner violence, um, or a prior child maltreatment event really are at very high risk for uh, reoccurrence. Recurrence, yeah. yeah. So um, the the approaches that have been taken place there, the uh, Healthy Steps program is another program that was actually developed in the civilian world and was adapted for the military, and that occurs within primary care clinics. Uh, so so there there has been a lot of effort. There is an understanding, you know, military uh, child maltreatment, rates of child maltreatment um, have historically been lower than civilian rates of child maltreatment. Some of that likely has to do with some of those protective factors that we've already spoken about, but it still is an, you know, an important public health issue um, uh, in the military as it is in the civilian world. And so there are continuing, um, you know, efforts to, to put into place program that can develop adequate prevention programs to decrease uh, the risk for child maltreatment. I think on the research side, uh, there's still quite a bit of work that needs to be done. And, and our interest at this point at the center, you know, we have worked in a number of areas of child maltreatment um, at the Center for the Study of Traumatic Stress um, related to child neglect, related to domestic partner violence, related to childhood fatalities in the military. Our team right now is really thinking about this idea of the family life course that contributes to maltreatment. So we, we know certain risk and protective factors, but what we would really like to know are, are what is the relationship between those risk factors and the timing of the life course in the family? And are there particular groups that have greater risk? And does that risk occur at certain times in the family? And, and how do events in the family, like the birth of a new child, influence that risk? So building a model that helps us understand across the experience of military families, where is that risk present? And who um, holds the greatest risk? So that that would absolutely uh, support the uh, you know the targeting of prevention programming that that could be less shotgun but more kind of narrow. So we know that you know universal um, prevention approaches for any kind of health public health problem are really important, but there may be. Um, selective or indicated prevention strategies uh, that would be applied to certain groups. I think new parent support is one of those, you know, understanding that young parents with new infants are likely to be at higher risk. And so there's a lot of effort there, but trying to, trying to add even more nuance to our understanding by, by the work that we're currently focusing on. 
when you think about child abuse professionals in the civilian world that have contact with military families and, you know, more than 50% of our children's advocacy centers around the country or relatively close to military installation, for example, some have very close relationships with those installations, others might not, but certainly all have military families that might come through their doors. And I'm just wondering, you know, what is your advice or what would you like them to be thinking of? when they're working with the military family, knowing that they'll be working in partnership with military professionals as well. But, you know, I think that for many CACs, military families are a small percentage of their total caseload, but we want to make sure that they're, you know, served very well by them as well. Sure. Um, Really important question. The other thing I just like to mention, I just think the development of the partnerships among children's advocacy centers and Family advocacy centers in the military is an incredibly important new effort. I mean, it's not that new, but it's a a developing effort and it's kind of continuing in ways that are really very important. And I think uh, it links um, our military communities to our civilian communities, both in terms of across individuals, but across resources. So I I think it's a great great development. Uh, I'm so glad to see it. What I would say is one of the most important things is identifying military families. So, mm-hmm. you know, asking questions about military service. So one thing that many people don't recognize is that we think of the military as this large, stagnant, monolithic group. But it's <laughs> constantly changing. So, you know, 11% of active duty service members leave the military every year. So as we think about this dynamic organization, mm-hmm. we want to be thinking not only about um, not only about active duty military, but reserve guard and veteran families. And why is that important? Because some of the experiences in these veteran families, especially if there's a diagnosis of traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress disorder, those influence risk for child maltreatment. And it also provides, it's, it's part of the identity of the family. So it's, it is a way of tapping into family strengths and recognizing that these were families that served and that's part of their identity. So I think that's always important to be asking questions about anyone in the family having military experience, anyone in the family deployed, anyone in the family uh, deployed into a combat zone or have, um, you know, have any medical conditions that resulted from their service uh, are important questions to be asking. There are more people out there um, than we realize who've served in the military. And many of those who served um, earlier in the military or no longer in the military who had some of these experiences. So that's really important to remember. And if they are veterans, you may not be engaging those, um, you may not be engaging with the family advocacy programs around those families, but really important to recognize because a lot of those protective factors that I was talking about in terms of resources like housing and universal health care and employment may not be present after an individual leaves the service. The veteran may have access to health care, but their family may not. You know, they may have challenges with employment and have challenges with housing like, you know, any other citizen in the United States. So, um, uh, so they're not quite as, they, they don't carry those protective factors necessarily into their veteran status. 
I think you raised such a good point because I think for people who are not in the military themselves or have not had that as a part of their experience, they may not realize that some of those services fall away when someone uh, leaves the military, that some of those benefits don't carry for their entire family. So I really appreciate you bringing that up and pointing that out so that children's advocacy centers can be thinking about that. It may mean that those families will need additional supports that they might not need for families that have access to FAP and access to healthcare and other kinds of things. So as we sort of close this interview, and I I could ask you many other questions, but I know that you have other responsibilities today too. But I'm just wondering, is there anything else that I should have asked you and and didn't, or anything else that you think is just key to talk about? The only thing I might add is just this overlay that all American families have had since the spring of 2020 with the exposure of COVID and the pandemic and quarantine. And there have been a number of survey results that have been released that have talked about the challenges that military families have had as a result of that. As I'm sure your listening group is aware, there are great concerns about you know, challenges in identifying child maltreatment um, yes. during COVID because children were not largely in places where child maltreatment is identified. And that was also true in military communities. So again, the recent DOD FAP report um, for 2020 identified significant reductions in child maltreatment for the year that I would wonder whether they're, um, I, I, you know, it's always nice to think that that might have to do with some sort of programming effort, but given the year and where yes. we're at, I would say that it's probably because there were situations that just were not identified. And what remains unclear as we move forward the next six months or a year as families, as the, the country hopefully reopens or continues to reopen and children return to school, Uh, What challenges are families going to face that are new and novel that we haven't even thought about yet um, related to the stresses of reentry that could potentially affect child maltreatment? And I know you all must be thinking about it on the civilian side for all American families, but I would also be wondering about potentially unique challenges for military families that we all need to be thinking about. And I don't have great answers for that, but I think we need to be thinking about it. Well, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think it's interesting. Our own numbers in Children's Advocacy Center sort of mirrored uh, what you were discussing, which is we had a period of time in which the number significantly dropped in terms of clients coming through our doors. And then really in the second half of 2020, that came back up. But now in the first half of 2021, we just closed out our six-month national stat period. It's the highest we've ever had. So many of those kids, there was delayed disclosure. They're now coming forward as they're out more in the community, talking with extended family, with, you know, maybe they have had their first doctor's visit in, you know, who knows how long, or they're around their playmates, whatever. But we're seeing that real uptick. So I do think that programs, both in children's advocacy centers, I'm sure in FAP and others, are going to see this uptick in numbers as well or I would imagine so, since we've already significantly experienced that. I think that would make sense. Well, we won't see the 2021 report, at least the publicly available report until sometime in the spring of uh, 2022. I think the other thing that's interesting, though, it it speaks to some of the vulnerabilities of identifying child maltreatment that, that we have in our existing system and makes you wonder, are there ways of, um, 
Uh, I do think that, I think I was getting, I saw some information about some of the hotline calls were actually elevated during the, the COVID time, which mm. would suggest that there may be avenues of engagement that uh, we also might be needing to think about that are non-traditional and are not necessarily the ways we identify kids who are at risk, but um, poses challenges and interesting questions. Absolutely. Well, as your research progresses, feel free to come back on the program. We'd love to have you back to hear more about this. And thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Kotza. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to One in 10. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend and take a moment to reach out to the military families in your life with a word of encouragement and support. For more information about NCA and the work of Children's Advocacy Centers with military families, please visit our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.